the views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Good afternoon, listeners. Welcome to our Sunday Space Show program. I'm your host, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, just a couple of very, very quick announcements before we get right to our program. This is a 60-minute format show, and we'd love to hear from you by telephone, which is 866-687-7223, or email drspace at thespaceshow.com. But do remember, it's a 60-minute format telephone program. And um, in addition to that, uh, we have a full schedule for the coming week, and it's already posted on all of our newsletters and our websites, so check it out. And the only thing I want to call your attention to is that Sunday is set up for open lines, but that may change as I'm waiting to hear from uh, some people connected with commercial activities on the space station to see if they're going to select that Sunday as a date for coming on the space show. So check the upcoming show newsletter on the far right of the website during the week for changes in the Sunday programming. Our phone number, as I said, is 866-687-7223. You can also email us at drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. If you'd like a copy of our short weekly email newsletter that tells you about the programming, it goes out at 6 a.m. West Coast time. Please make sure I have your email address, and I will be glad to add you to the list. Uh, don't forget about our Space Show store, which you can easily access off of our website. And then remember, we are a nonprofit 501c3 with one giant leap foundation, and we are listener-supported. So if you like our programming, please help us. There's a PayPal button link on the upper right side of our homepage. If you use Zelle, use the email address at david at onegiantleapfoundation.org. And if you want to mail us a check, it's made payable to One Giant Leap Foundation, and it mails to our Las Vegas offices, which are on our website and our PayPal button. And then don't forget, we have sponsors. Uh, As this is a 60-minute format, I'm just going to mention their names and sort of do a a little shout-out to them. So we we have AIAA and the Space Foundation. Northrop Grumman, Astrops, Celestis, Dr. Heim Benaroya in his Lunar Development books, and um, Helix in Luxembourg is our newest uh, sponsor. And we are most appreciative of them. You can check their banner ads out. And if you are interested in doing the same thing, email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. Our guest today is Dr. Seth Shostak. He's a senior astronomer at SETI, um, and um, many of you know him. He's been on the show before, but he's been everywhere before. And um, he recently uh, did an op-ed that caught my attention in the Wall Street Journal about something called the Cosmic Project, which we will talk about in a few minutes. Uh, but Seth, welcome back to the show. And it's been a couple of years since you were on. Uh, what's happening that's new with SETI? Can you give us a couple-of-year update? Well, yes, of course, David. I think that 
in, in some sense, the most important changes to SETI are the you know routine discoveries in astronomy, and in particular when you find out more about you know how many planets hang out around a star and what kind of planets are they the kinds of planets that might spawn life and maybe even intelligent life. So that's not something that the SETI scientists themselves do in general, but it is something that greatly affects SETI. I mean. If you look back the way SETI was done a few decades ago, it was done on a hope and a prayer kind of thing because we didn't know if there were really a lot of planets out there. And now we do, and we also know that, you know, roughly one in three or four stars has a planet, I should say sun-like stars, has a planet that is, you know, roughly the same dimensions as the Earth. So conceivably also a spawn for life and uh, even intelligence. But what's new in terms of the SETI observing, the actual experiment, well, there are a couple of things. One is uh, a refinement of the SETI listening at radio frequencies. That's traditionally the way SETI's been done. Uh, And it's called Project Cosmic, as you mentioned, Cosmic, which is a highly tortured acronym, which uh, neither David nor I could (laughs) remember. But in any case, what we do is we take a, 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 we sort of split the, radio energy coming in to each of the 27 antennas of the very large array down in New Mexico, uh, which is just doing radio astronomy, but we, you know, we sort of tapped into that, and we analyzed those same data coming in, those same signals, uh, looking for what are called, you know, narrow band signals, the kind of signals we expect ET to send. So that project uh, is a 24-7 SETI experiment. It began a couple of months ago. And uh, it uses this very large array of 27 antennas, so it's just an ongoing effort uh, to to find ET. Where is it looking, or does it look across the entire sky, or does it have a special part of the sky it's looking at? Well, that's the downside of a uh, what's called a uh, piggyback experiment, right? Because we're piggybacking on those 27 antennas, but they're being used to do radio astronomy. So they are aimed in the direction that the, you know, the, the scientist who's actually in charge of those antennas at the time uh, wants to look, maybe studying a galaxy somewhere, or maybe he's studying a, a nebula in our own Milky Way galaxy, whatever. So we don't, we don't call the shots on where it points, but on the other hand, if you're of an optimistic uh, you know, mindset, you would say, well, I mean, you know, there, there are a trillion planets in the Milky Way galaxy, so essentially anywhere you point, you're going to be pointing at some star system with planets, and uh, who's to say whether they have intelligent beings on them or not? So, yes, it's, it's kind of blind, but on the other hand, there's a lot of stuff in space. Where is the array physically located? Well, the very large array is it's um, in a place called, or the nearest town is Socorro, New Mexico. It isn't that close, actually. It's about an hour drive to the west of Socorro, New Mexico, and you come across the very large array. It's in a, a kind of a desert area. It was an old uh, lake bed, uh, you know, a couple right. hundred thousand years ago. But you can go visit it. It has a nice visitor center, and looking at the antennas is pretty nifty, at least if they're all pushed together as they occasionally are. Uh, when I went to see it, and it was over 20 years ago, we could walk around the different antennas and just go out there unsupervised. I don't know if they allow that anymore. but um, Yeah, I, I, I don't either. The last time I was there, you could just walk around as well. I mean, <laughs> if the antennas are, you know, they have various configurations of the uh, antennas. They're on a, a kind of a Y uh, line up on the desert there. They're on railroad tracks, and you know, every couple of weeks or a couple of months, they'll push them around to a new configuration. It turns out that if you do that, uh, you can make very accurate and uh, sensitive maps, radio maps of the sky. So that's that's what's done. But in any case, depending on the luck of the draw when you go there, you know, they might be close together or they might be spread out over many miles. Um, is the lack of discovering a signal an indication of nothing there, or why is it so very, very hard to find something if the answer is there's nothing there in the first place? Well, of course, yes, you could say that the results of all SETI experiments to date, and remember the first SETI experiment was back in 1960, so it's been a long time. That was Frank Drake's uh, Project Ozma, and we've never found a signal that we could verify as being truly extraterrestrial. 
But you really can't conclude from that that there's nobody out there. What you can conclude from it is that we haven't found them. And there are manifold reasons for why they might be there, but that we wouldn't find them. Maybe the sensitivity of our equipment isn't adequate to pick up the signals. After all, they might be quite far away. Or uh, we're just pointing in the wrong direction. That's possible, although some SETI experiments have looked at essentially all the sky. But, you know, maybe the time that we were pointed in their direction, they were on summer break or, you know, eating lunch or who knows what. So, you know, it could be, as I say, lack of sensitivity, uh, pointing in the wrong direction. Uh, and it could be that, you know, you, you, you just... Well, maybe you're not looking for the right kind of signal. That's always possible, too. Um, Tim sent in a related question. He's in Huntsville and says, has there been any major improvements since the WOW signal and radio telescope receiver sensitivity days? And if so, would it be significant enough that we could pick up the same signal with a smaller radio telescope? Or could we even pick up the same signal? Does it exist? Yeah, well, if if he's talking about the wow signal, which it sounds as if he is. Yeah, I think he is. The wow signal was picked up one time in, uh, uh, in the 1970s using the Ohio State <clears throat> Radio Telescope near Columbus, Ohio. Now, that telescope doesn't exist anymore. They demolished it and replaced it with a golf course, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> the reason it's gone is because it was no longer really cutting cutting edge. It wasn't if you will, up-to-date, and to improve it would have been extremely expensive, so they just sold the land or leased the land, whatever they did. So the Ohio State Observatory doesn't exist, but I have to say, as far as the wow signal is concerned, yes, it looked like the kind of the kind of signal that you would expect coming from the sky. I mean, it had, you know, the right shape and all that, but on the other hand, it was looked for again, essentially immediately. You know, like a minute later, they, they, they automatically they had two receivers on this antenna. The, the second receiver kicked in, and they looked for the signal again and didn't find it. And it has been looked for again in, you know, essentially the same direction many times by many people trying to find the wow a second time because that would make it a, a lot more uh, convincing. But it never has been found a second time. So in that case, all you can say is, well, I mean, we don't know what it was. Maybe it was E.T., but... You know, if you don't find it a second time, you really can't say much of anything. He wants to know if there's been major improvements in your sensitivity and receiver hardware since that. Well, yes. The SETI Institute was not involved in the original detection of the WOW signal. That was Ohio State University. Uh But in general, radio astronomy instrumentation has gotten better. That's just the march of technology. In particular, it's not so much that it's gotten more sensitive, as it has gotten faster by being able to to check out, you know, a bigger part of the radio dial in the same amount of time that in the past you could only check out a small part of the radio dial. That's maybe the biggest change, but it is true that the equipment keeps getting better all the time. Mostly, most of that project is due to the improvements in uh, computing technology, right? You can buy a computer now for your home that really dwarfs what the compute power was or even the most powerful computers, you know, 40 years ago. Um, you have a, I can't believe they're, they're getting notes so early in the show. Sharon in Seattle says, why do you think they didn't rebuild and improve the Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico radio observatory that was so famous and so huge? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. The Arecibo telescope, as it was called, that was originally built by the Army and Cornell, sort of a joint project. And, you know, in the, in the beginning, it, was, it had in defense applications. That was one of the things it was built for. But it turned out that if you build an antenna that's 1,000 feet across, and that's what the Arecibo telescope was, you know, it's pretty darn sensitive. It's a big bucket for radio waves. And so it very quickly became a, a major instrument for uh, radio astronomy. Now, I used to use it to study galaxies. You know, it was so big, it was very, very sensitive. It was like 18 acres of metal mesh down there in Puerto Rico. But they didn't rebuild it, she's right, because the cost of rebuilding it was so high. I think it was estimated at something like $100 million. And $100 million for some government project is not a whole lot, but, you know, if you had to pay it personally, you might consider it a lot of money. Uh, and it was the general consensus of those who were charged with possibly rebuilding it that it was much better to build something new than to rebuild 
this antenna that really dated to the 1950s. So did they build something new to replace it? They did not. You can still go to the Arecibo Radio Telescope and, you know, go to the Visitor Center and buy, you know, postcards or whatever, all sorts of <laughs> mementos of the antenna. But the antenna itself uh, is gone. Is, is there anything new? As far as I know. Is there anything new on the on the drawing boards that are being planned, or we're just relying on China? There was, well, there was no replacement. There is no replacement, as far as I know, for the Arecibo Telescope. No. Uh, it is true that even when I was using it for studying galaxies, you know, there were routine visits by Chinese uh, scientists uh, who, you know, wanted to build their own version of Arecibo instead of it being 300 meters across, which is 1,000 feet. Right. Uh, they built one that's 500 meters across, and it also has known by its acronym the FAST radio telescope. But I, I don't recall what FAST stands for, but... Uh, I, maybe you can go visit that too, but it's in China. Have you been there? Have you had any chance to operate or work on it? I haven't been to the one in China. I have not. I've been to China a couple of times, but never to the radio telescope there. No. Do they let people get time on it and work on it, or is it strictly? As far as I know, they do. I think you can. You can. But I haven't. We haven't done that. But uh, I, I, I would just go to their website and check out what the requirements are. Normally, for very large uh, astronomical instruments, whether they're radio telescopes or they're just, you know, big mirror lens telescopes or even space telescopes, usually they're open to anybody who wants to submit a proposal. And you don't have to be affiliated with a university or even have a, an advanced degree in principle. In practice, it usually comes down to that because... You know, there's a committee that reviews your proposal and says, okay, this person's asking for five days of observing time or whatever, and what they want to check out is, I don't know, the rotation of galaxies or something. And they will look at your proposal, and they will also know, you know, have you published research in the past and so forth. So it's, it's, your proposal is judged on the, you know, the usual criteria in science, and that means as a practical matter that most of the people using the telescope are, in fact, affiliated with you know, a university or uh, an observatory of some sort. Um, so um, here's another uh, one. Uh, our listener, Todd, is in San Diego. And, um, wow, I cannot believe so many questions already. Uh, Todd in, in San, Di San Diego says uh, SETI gets a lot of criticism for searching with uh, radio waves or advanced radio waves in light. And many claim that, that that's too old-fashioned and advanced intelligent systems would probably not be doing that. What do you say in response to that? I'm sure you've heard it before. Well, I do hear it because people say, you guys are looking for radio waves. That's so, you know, that's so old school. Why don't you do something a little more up-to-date? But the question is, what what is more up-to-date? I mean, it's easy to say that the aliens won't use radio because that's just too antiquated. But actually, radio waves or light, because there are projects, you know, SETI projects to look for flashing laser lights, too. I mean, those are great ways to send lots of bits of information in a very short time at the speed of light, which is as fast as you can send them. And uh, so, you know, yeah, maybe they're way ahead of us technologically, but the chances that they're not using radio for something seem a little... It seemed a little remote to me. Maybe I'm just naive, but, you know, and I, I will occasionally point out that the wheel is an old invention, too. But we still use the wheel, and we probably always will use the wheel. So uh, I think that uh, communicating with radio or in, in other experiments, the light, yeah, it's an old technology, and there, there are telescopes and receivers and whatever are undoubtedly better than ours, but they're using... The using that to communicate uh, is probably something that you never stop doing. Uh, is SETI planning to do an upgrade to search for something other than radio waves or light, or, or just keep enhancing that technology? Well, the you know, SETI is always constrained by one thing above all others, and that is money. Correct. Right. Uh, you know, there is essentially no government funding of SETI. Uh, not these days. Uh, it's, it's privately funded by people who think, okay, this is an interesting experiment. Let's do it, and I'll give you guys some money. And if it's somebody who has a lot of money, maybe they can give you enough that it, it, you can you know, afford to hire some uh, astronomers and, and stuff like that. 
But, you know, to say that there are better ways to do it without telling you anything about what those better ways are doesn't, you know, that doesn't actually help too much. I mean, what are you going to do with that information? Um, I saw a news article a couple of days ago. It, it was probably space.com, but it's probably been reported elsewhere. So I, I'd like to ask you about this and the significance. Uh, they're reporting that a star was found traveling 5 million miles per hour. I'm sure you've seen this or heard of this. And uh, what's the significance of what, what is the normal speed of a star, for example? Well, yeah, to begin with, you know, most stars, of course, are, uh, they have a home galaxy. They live in a galaxy somewhere. And so, you know, all the stars are, in general, rotating around the center of that galaxy. It's a big pinwheel, if you will. And the speed of that rotation, which is, of course, the speed of the stars, is typically 10 to 20 kilometers per second. Now, that's, that's pretty fast. It's not 5 million miles an hour, but it's, you know, it would, it would impress your neighbors if your car could go 10 kilometers per second. I think so, yeah. I got them. But, you know, that's, that's the speed of stars around in space. That some stars are going much faster, yes, that's interesting, but not terribly surprising because, uh, you know, stars occasionally collide. And I, I don't mean they actually hit one another. I mean, they probably do that too, but that's really very rare. But they, they get, you know, they, they get close to one another in a sort of a fender bender where you never actually hit the other guy's fender, right? And so they, they interact by their own gravity. And usually the result of that is one of the stars is slowed down and the other star is sped up. So there are ways with these sort of near collisions to speed up stars to very high speeds. Uh, five million kilometers per, what was it? Per five hour? million miles per hour, yeah. Oh, or five million miles per hour. Well, I mean, after all, that's, that, that's, that's pretty fast, but it's not impossible. It's not anywhere near the speed of light. And so, um, yeah, you could do it, and it doesn't surprise me. The interesting thing about that might be the following, and that is that is fast enough that the star can actually escape its own galaxy, right? So not good news for the star or for any planets around it because if it gets kicked out of the galaxy, it's now in, really in deep, dark space. It doesn't have any nearby stars as companions. You're sort of all alone. You've been cast out into the cold of interstellar space. That might not affect conditions on your planet terribly much, but it is kind of a bummer if you're interested in astronomy because everything is now far away from you. So if uh, a star was traveling that fast, would its planetary system be traveling that fast? Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the details of the collision. If you actually had a, you know, uh, a near collision, if you will, of two stars, that might also affect the planets, or at least some of them. So, you know, maybe they get kicked out too. But, you know, there are conditions under which the two stars might conceivably uh, continue on at uh, one of them with an accelerated speed, uh, with their planetary systems are largely intact. That could be, but that depends on the details of the interaction. So is this sort of a ho-hum announcement or a really big deal announcement? Well, I would say I would probably neither. Uh, nobody's going to say ho-hum to that kind of a number, but on the other hand, you know, it, it isn't uh, akin to finding that, you know, uh, I, I don't know, that all stars have planets. That, that's a big discovery. That's a big discovery because that changes, that really changes the landscape. It isn't just a peculiar you know, thing that you've, uh, you've discovered. So I, I, I wouldn't say it's ho-hum and I wouldn't say it's revolutionary because it doesn't change the physics of anything. And it, it, doesn't, it isn't a case where something's happening that you couldn't understand, right? Right. Didn't expect. Some stars will be going fast. Uh, before I give you over to our, our caller, um, if there is ET out there, and they were more advanced than us, they, I'm going to assume they might be able to tell that, that they're being looked for. Could they camouflage or hide their electromagnetic signatures, their signals, everything, so that a planet like Earth with our technology could never find them? Well... Of course, that's possible. You know, you could do everything. You could just, you know, not use powerful transmitters for anything, 
right? And and all communications on your planet would go via cable, right? By a wire, if you will. And then you're not leaking much uh, radiation into space. You could do that. You could do that. It's more expensive, and it's not entirely clear, you know, what the danger is of setting up a television transmitter and uh, having a big antenna on the hill outside of town and broadcasting to all the uh, nearby residents and, of course, inadvertently, unintentionally, also broadcasting into space and sort of betraying your existence. Look, if the aliens are out there, of course, you don't know whether they'd be friendly or hostile. I mean, you don't know. But it's also the case that those signals are fairly weak, so it's not clear you would be detected, maybe. But beyond that, it's very difficult for them to come here (laughs) and give you a hard time. Right, because they're undoubtedly many light years away. I mean, they can't be any less than four light years away. That's the nearest other star system. And, you know, the, the odds are they're, they're more than that and maybe considerably more. But let's say they're as far away as uh, 100 light years or even 10 light years. Right, 10 light years is a long way. Right, a light year is almost 6 trillion miles. So 10 of them is uh, 60 trillion miles. And no matter what technology they have, that's that's a very expensive trip, even if, you know, assuming they could even make it. It would take our rockets, our fastest rockets, like 75,000 years to go to the nearest other star. That's a long rocket ride. You're going to really get bored with the food. So uh, I, I think that to worry that, you know, by using radio or radar, which we use a lot of, uh, is dangerous because we're alerting the aliens to our presence, that's a cost-benefit analysis. You know, you can say, okay, we're not going to allow radar. But if you don't allow radar, the next time you take a flight at night in a storm, you might regret that decision. So you have to make a trade-off. Let's see who your caller is. A good afternoon, caller. Welcome to our program today. Who are you? Where are you, please? Uh, this is John Fort Worth. Hi, John. Welcome yeah. to the show. Yeah, uh, well, first of all, okay, we're just kind of following up on the previous discussion here. Um, okay, the techniques that we're using right now, how far, if, if there was a civilization like ours somewhere in the neighborhood, how far away could we detect with our, what we're putting out right now? Yeah. Well, John, that's a good question. Unfortunately, the answer depends on a bunch of things that are kind of specifics of the setup. Um, because it depends on whether their their broadcast, their their transmissions, let's call them that, their transmissions mm-hmm. are you know equal in all directions, or do they do what we do here on Earth? You know, your local television station, yeah, it may have a transmitter, but to begin with, that kind of technology is probably going to go away in another 50 years. You won't you won't have you know on the air broadcast because uh, it takes too much energy and you might not get a good signal it'll all be by a fiber optic cable or something like that in which case you know you're not leaking anything in this space uh, but the other thing is because you know the advertisers want as big an audience as you can get you, you send the signal in all directions but if the aliens were trying to get our attention if for some reason they knew that this planet here that they can maybe detect, right, which obviously has an atmosphere and water and all that stuff, if they're deliberately trying to get our attention, then they can build a big reflector on their transmitter, right? You know, they can make it like a, a, a big dish and aim the signal in our direction, in which case the amount of power they need for us to be able to pick up their signal is much, much less. I mean, it could get down, depending on what you do, uh, you know, some configurations, they could do with the power of an automobile headlight, right, if, if they're really aimed in our direction, very specifically in our direction. So, unfortunately, it depends on a lot of things. But if the aliens are trying to get in touch, uh, they can certainly afford to do so. If they're not trying to get in touch, then it becomes harder for us because now we have to make very sensitive receivers. Right. But, okay, but I'm just saying that, that if, okay, that then the likelihood then of detecting, let's say, a civilization 100 light years away that's just not trying to get our attention but just broadcasting something like what we broadcast just inadvertently doing everything we do for other purposes is pretty low then, right? Well, it would be very difficult for us. But, John, okay. never underestimate the extraterrestrials, right? We've had, we've had radio, I don't know, you know, Hertz and, and Marconi and all those guys. It's like a century ago, a little over a century ago. 
But there are going to be societies out there that have had radio for a billion years, right? The, the right. universe is 14 billion years old, so they've had plenty of time, some of them, some of them, have had plenty of time to develop that technology far beyond uh, where we are. And uh, so it may be that they have huge antennas, fields of antennas, arrays of antennas that are extraordinarily sensitive. So, you know, um, they might be able to pick things up. Now, there is this. We've only really been transmitting for like a century, right? So uh, those signals are only 100 light years out. And if the aliens are the ones that are paying attention are more than 100 light years away, they won't hear anything from Earth. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, but I'm just saying in general that I'm trying to do a mirror image, basically, that you know they've been transmitting and we're trying to pick them up, and they've been around maybe longer. Is what I was kind of alluding to is that, that, that how difficult it is. But another thing I would think that would be very interesting are ideas like this Project Starshot and things like that that an alien civilization might be using beam microwave energy to accelerate a small craft for interstellar probe purposes and we might be able, could we might be able to inadvertently pick up on something like that a lot further away than just random signals maybe well uh, that that is an interesting project it's a project of uh, Yuri Milner who actually lives not terribly far from where I'm sitting here today uh, and he is you know he and others I should say have considered you know making spacecraft that are you know really small and just you know, shooting a whole bunch of them into space or just deliberately sending them to the nearest star to you and that kind of thing. But, you know, sending information by actually, if you will, you know, writing it down, stuffing it into a, a spacecraft and sending it into space, it, that's not impossible. But it's maybe not a really great way to do it because you can, you're only going to reach, uh, reach anybody if they're in that direction that you launch the spacecraft. Whereas if you're willing to use radio or lasers or something like that, you can reach many, many more destinations uh, than you can by, you know, putting something in a rocket. So mm -hmm. if, if you don't know where they are, I would say, you know, don't make the, uh, the transmission so directed. Right. Well, I was just saying that they that they might be doing something like that for whatever reason, and that would be some type of a signal that we might be able to pick up on. I mean, uh, in other words, it would be you know inadvertent, but but might be a stronger signal. Is what I'm saying. Where they'd have a massive array to transmit that much energy way above beyond normal communication. Yeah. Well, absolutely. That's the whole premise of SETI, of course. Right. <laughs> We're looking for a signal, not that we know that they broadcast anything, but that we make the same assumptions that you just made that, you know, some of them may be. So, indeed, you're quite right. Yeah, I think that's another thing that you might be able to pick up on. But the other problem I see is just how many technological civilizations that would be at the right level that would be arbitrarily close. Now, I guess if you're dealing with really old civilizations, then, of course, you get the question of stability and that, that. But, I mean, you know, there might only be two or three or four that are at that level in this whole galaxy right now, even though there might be, you know, billions in the whole universe. And, and so that chance of running across would be quite fleeting, I would think, maybe. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the problem with that is you're, you're delving into what's called, uh, or what I call in any case, alien sociology. You know, we, we 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 don't know what their you know what their interests are and what they might be willing to do, and so it could be that nobody broadcasts into space. You know, all the advanced civilizations. Sure, they begin with some broadcasts, but after a couple of hundred years, they stop with all that, and uh, they deliver all the information on that fiber optic. Uh, fiber optic cable type uh, that yeah. I was talking about a little earlier, you know, and then you you will never hear them. Yeah, there may be, but you will never find the aliens by dismissing all attempts to find them, I don't think. So it's better to say, okay, we don't know what they, they might be doing, but let's at least look in case they're doing something that we can we can find. Yeah. Well, anyway, interesting concepts. I'll uh, clear the line see if some other caller wants to get in with you. Thank, thank you very much, John. appreciate the call. Uh, listeners, you too can give us a call if you would like. It is 866-687-7223. Uh, listener Tim, also in Huntsville, says, What is the sensitivity of a radio telescope receiver? I'm sorry, I didn't get that last word. The radio, the he wants to know what the, the typical sensitivity is of a radio telescope receiver. 
Yeah. Well, uh, both in radio astronomy and, for that matter, SETI, the unit that uh, is used to determine the you know the the minimum strength signal you can find might give some indication to that. And that uh, that unit is the Jansky. It's named after the guy who really pioneered radio. Uh, astronomy back in the 1930s. He was working for the phone company. But in any case, a Jansky is 10 to the minus 26 watts per meter square per, per hertz. Okay, for those who are not technically inclined, that doesn't mean much. But for those who are, 10 to the minus 26 is a number that's, you know, a decimal point and then 25 zeros and then a one. So it's really small. Okay, and that's the kind of... Uh, kind of strength of signal that uh, is typically, uh, you know, that typically describes your sensitivity for both radio astronomy and for SETI. It depends on other things like, uh, you know, the width of the uh, frequency range you're monitoring and how long you look and stuff like that. But, you know, that gives you an idea of the order of magnitude of what you're talking about. And indeed, uh, somebody told me a long time ago, they they'd worked it out, that the total energy collected by all radio, astronomies, uh, radio astronomers since the beginning of that enterprise was, you know, equivalent to, well, an ant raising one leg. So, you know, it's, it's, these are very, very small numbers. That's, that's a good thing, in fact, and it's, if you will, fortuitous that radio techno- uh, technology is so gosh darn sensitive that you can even do these experiments, but that's the case. Is it weather sensitive? Uh, in general, not. It depends on the frequency range that you're looking at. There's when you go to higher frequencies, you might have trouble with the weather. But in general, uh, these signals are sought in the microwave part of the spectrum. So the wavelengths are, you know, centimeters to maybe meters. But uh, and, and in that case, the weather doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter whether it's daytime or nighttime. It, it works all the time. Uh, you have another caller waiting to talk to you. Uh, good afternoon, caller. Welcome to the program. Who are you? Where are you, please? Hey, David. It's John in Fremont, California. Hi there. Hey. Um, hey, Seth. Uh, I I saw that uh, Cosmic used uh, their system to actually detect the Voyager 1 spacecraft. Uh, I guess to maybe test out the system. Can you can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, I don't know the details of the experiment they ran, but you have already nailed it. Anyhow, uh, most SETI experiments, and for that matter, most radio astronomy experiments, uh, at some point you you know you want to test the system to make sure that it's working, because certainly in the case of SETI experiments, you know you might not be picking up anything that's interesting. And, you know, you can say, well, that's because I'm not looking in the right place or something like that. But it could also be that you're not picking it up because some of your uh, electronics is simply not working. You, you thought it was, but it isn't. And so usually once an hour for radio astronomy, a little less for say, you calibrate the system by pointing at a known transmitter. And for radio astronomy, you normally point it at a quasar or something like that, which you know puts out a lot of uh, radio energy in the frequency range you're interested in. But for SETI, it's a, a little better to point in the direction of some purpose-built transmitter, some transmitter that was built by people, <laughs> by humans, right? So they do look at Voyager 1 or some of the other spacecraft out there because many of them have operating uh, transmitters. And uh, if you can't pick up those guys, you know, you know there's something wrong. Yeah. So um, what sort of uh, signal are you looking for? Um, I, I think SETI in the past has, has looked at a particular microwave uh, frequency range, uh, what they used to call the water hole. Um, can you um, uh, describe a little bit more in detail what sort of signal would stand out? Yeah, we do uh, continue to look at the so-called waterfall. That's just a, a, a part of the radio dial, if you will, that is defined on one end uh, by uh, uh, 1420 megahertz, more or less. At 1420 megahertz, hydrogen emits uh, a natural radio signal. This has been known since the war. And uh, so you have hydrogen at that frequency. And then if you go up to 1600 and some megahertz, uh, you have, uh, you know, the hydroxyl radical, H, HO, or whatever it is. I think it's 
uh, yeah, it's it's a radical of water. But in, in any case, you have oxygen on one end and hydrogen on the other, and so people call it the water hole because, of course, oxygen and hydrogen are what are required to make water, which is H2O. And water being what everyone considers an essential ingredient for life, or most people consider that, then, you know, this, this, is the, this region of the dial is called the water hole. And most experiments in SETI will tune the receivers to some frequency range in that, in that bounded area between hydrogen and oxygen. It's called the water hole. Okay, well, great. But, you know, why would ET necessarily broadcast only in that region? And the answer to that is, well, we don't know. I mean, we don't know, but... What you do know is that if they're sophisticated enough to have built big radio telescopes and receivers and stuff like that, then they too will know of these two natural uh, frequencies at which you know the, the cosmos transmits to you. They will know that. That will be marked on their radio dials too, if you will, those two frequencies. So if they're really deliberately trying to get your attention, they may broadcast a signal in that range of frequencies knowing that you will monitor them in any case. Yeah, so um, at, at one point several years ago, I got the screensaver SETI at home, and uh, my computer would analyze ET signals in the background uh, to determine if there's a signal. Is that still going on, and will, will cosmic uh, uh, feed data from, from this, uh, the very large array into that system? Yeah, unfortunately, the SETI at home project has been put on hiatus, uh, it isn't running, and the reason for that, I mean, the idea for it, the idea of using people's home computers to process, you know, SETI data when they weren't using their computers or not using their computers intensively, that idea was cooked up by a fellow uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, and he got uh, the attention of people eventually at the University of California, Berkeley, and they they built SETI at home. So they built the software that you could download and, you know, process SETI data. The reason that it was stopped was not because it wasn't working or it wasn't valuable, because it was doing both. But it also required somebody's attention because people would have trouble with the downloads or, you know, some sort of technical problem. Somebody had to to deal with that. And so simply running the program took the efforts of, you know, maybe one person uh, full-time doing that. And, you know, there's so little money for SETI that one additional person uh, was more than could be afforded, at least these days. So it's, uh, it was, you know, just put on, on halt for a while. It may come back. It was, it was a good thing. But nonetheless, despite the fact that 7 million people downloaded SETI at home, I think the bulk of SETI data are still being reduced by the computers that are wielded at the university or at the SETI Institute because those are much bigger computers. Um, okay, so so there won't be any opportunities for citizen scientists to get involved in this effort. At this well, there's no pro- there's no pro- project that I know of at the moment. I mean, citizen science projects always come back, you know, one way or another. Maybe not in the same form that they originally did. But I don't know whether SETI at home will come back or not. It's it's a it's a money question, unfortunately. It's not it's not a technology question. Yeah, I get it. Okay. Well, uh, thanks uh, for coming on the show, and uh, I'll get off and see if someone else wants to call in, David. Thank you, John. Uh, Barbara's in Phoenix, and Barbara says, um, is it possible to buy a consumer-oriented radio telescope for your backyard or your rooftop like satellite TV? Yeah, I, I don't know of any. There was a project for many years, uh, you know, that, that did do what was it called actually uh, it, it was a project in which people could modify their backyard satellite dishes which you know were used to download signals from satellites broadcasting right. their favorite TV shows and modify those things so that uh, you know there were, there were plans to build of how you could build a receiver that you could put on one of these backyard satellite dishes and then use it for radio astronomy or SETI or something like that the thing is that uh, I, don't, I don't know if you know those those are still around. You might you might look around. You might find something. But the the difference is this: for uh, conventional astronomy, which uses you know mirrors and lenses uh, for the telescopes, 
amateurs can make big contributions because they can actually be looking at you know a much wider bit of the sky than a, a professional telescope like you know, the Hubble Space Telescope, for example. The Hubble Space Telescope looks at a tiny fraction of the sky, right? Uh, so, you know, if you're looking, for example, for comets or, or even asteroids, those sorts of things, then somebody with a backyard uh, telescope, you know, with an aperture of 6 inches or 12 inches or something like that, they can be very valuable because there are lots of them, tens of thousands of them, and they can find things that the professional astronomers will never find. But in the case of SETI, lamentably, yes, you could have a lot more people doing it, but uh, the sensitivity of your backyard setup is usually, you know, not anywhere comparable to the kind of sensitivity that the professional uh, SETI experiments can reach. So it, it, it seems to me, and this is a really a very qualitative statement, but it seems to me that amateur SETI, where you actually build telescopes or receivers and things like that, that's, that's something that has been done in the past. Maybe it will be done again in the future, but you're really up against uh, you know, the increasing ability to use a big radio telescope, like a very large array in New Mexico, right, which would have so much more sensitivity that it really makes your own efforts not so valuable. Um, I also have an article about an inflatable lunar radio telescope that I think was developed by ESA or is being developed by ESA, uh, would something like that be a plus in looking for signals? Well, it depends. I mean, you say, well, if we go to the moon, of course, everything will be much better. But how will it be better? Uh, it would be better if you were doing what's called optical SETI. You were looking for flashing lights because, you know, you're not under an atmosphere, which messes things up, as we know. But if you're doing radio SETI, if you're doing the traditional kind of searching, you know, the atmosphere really doesn't play much of a role here on Earth, at least for, at most frequencies. You know, the radio waves just come right through the atmosphere, and it's a lot easier to build something here on the Earth than to build something on the moon. So uh, it depends. If you go to very high frequencies, then indeed getting out from under that atmosphere is a, a big plus, and for that you might want to put up observatories on the moon. Does the fact that it's an inflatable... I guess, sort of portable radio telescope add anything to it? Well, uh, you know, if you're here on Earth, and I think most humans are here on Earth, uh, I, I'm not sure that, that that would help you very much because, uh, yeah, it may be big and inflatable, but how do you steer it, right? You've got to keep moving it around because the Earth is rotating, so what you're looking at is constantly moving across the sky. I wonder so you what have you... to move it around, and uh, I, I don't know, I mean... Uh, a big inflatable antenna might be hard to move around. I'd, yeah, hire all the neighbors, maybe. I don't know. What would you inflate it with? Well, you could inflate it with Buddha, just air. I mean, you know, you just bring along some air. Just, right? just air. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, on the moon, there's no, you know, you don't have to inflate it to a particularly high pressure because there's nothing pushing back on it. There's no atmosphere pushing back on it. So, so I guess it will be depending on the zoning laws there in the neighborhood, right? Well, you might run into that, yes. What what is SETI looking for specifically as as we go forward beyond 2023? Is is there something that that has your attention? Well, I'll tell you, the things that, looking at the bigger picture, we will continue to do radio SETI. And again, that's, that's, it's always a money problem. But if we have the funding to do that, and it looks like we will, at least for a year or two, I hope much longer than that, but we will continue to do that using the kinds of technologies that we've been talking about here uh, on this show. Optical SETI, where you're looking for flashing lasers, that might, uh, that will continue too. So in some sense, it's more the same, but it's not the same because, in fact, the technologies keep getting better. And, you know, just a personal hobby horse for me, I think it's uh, also important to keep in touch with the general astronomical research community because, in fact, well, the universe is three times older than the Earth, right? So there's been plenty of time for societies to get far beyond our technical abilities. There could be societies out there that are five billion years more advanced than we are in technology. And so if you ask yourself, well, all right, how would you find such a society? Who knows? But one thing you can say is that if they're building stuff, they could build really big stuff. 
stuff that we can't manage. Maybe they could rearrange stars in their neighborhood or something like that. That's been suggested. So I think it's, um, if I had to bet how we're going to find E.T., I think that there's a very strong argument to be made that they will be found just in the usual business of astronomy doing reconnaissance of the universe, just looking around and, and, and tripping across something like a Dyson sphere or whatever. You trip across some sort of uh, engineering construction that is far beyond our ability but is out there, and it's because there was somebody there with enough intelligence and the desire to build such a thing. So that SETI is uh, a different kind of SETI. Listeners, uh, there's still time if you hurry up and want to give us a call, 866-687-7223. Dan is in Denver, and he says, um, with all the talk of humans going to Mars, whether you approve of that or not is not really the issue. But what I don't understand is why I don't hear that once humans get to Mars, they set up a radio observatory place and use it for searching for SETI signals. Would there be an advantage to having radio observatory antennas on Mars? Would it give us any advantage in searching? And why wouldn't that be an early project of Mars settlers? Yeah. Well, we, we just sort of talked a little bit about that. The facts are that, yes, Mars doesn't have much of an atmosphere. It has an atmosphere, but it's not much of one. Uh, and, and, you know, the atmosphere does mess up a little bit uh, if you're doing optical SETI. You're looking for flashing lasers or something like that, but not enough to to really give you a big advantage by putting the uh, antennas on Mars or the telescopes on Mars. As far as radio SETI is concerned, where you're using antennas, you know, those radio waves come right through Earth's atmosphere at almost all frequencies of interest here. So there's not a big obvious advantage to putting these big antennas on Mars. You might as well put them on the Earth where they're easier to... They're much easier to build. So, so Mars doesn't give you much of an advantage then? Well, you know, in, at most wavelengths, if you will, whether they're radio or optical, it's, it's not a big advantage, no. Would the moons of Mars give you an advantage? Well, moons of Mars, they give you an advantage if you're trying to lose weight. They're small, so you wouldn't weigh much. But that would be a problem, actually, because you'd have to bolt everything down because otherwise you'd just eventually float away. Uh, no, the moons of Mars are at the same distance as Mars. Right? I mean, you don't get any closer to the aliens by looking for them from Mars. Right? Mars is another, what, so, at, at the best, it's 35 million miles away. That's, that's nothing. So if Voyager had had... ET searching capabilities that were still functional, would it have an advantage being in interstellar space? No, I don't think so, because you haven't gone very far, right? I mean, it's like saying you live in New York and you're going to visit San Francisco, and so you walk across your living room, uh, you know, in the west direction, and sure, now you're closer to San Francisco, but not significantly closer. So even though it's far away in interstellar space, it's not far enough to make a difference? And no, because it isn't that far away in interstellar space, right? I mean, our, our, uh, the, the spacecraft that is on the farthest from Earth are, I don't know, maybe they're a couple of times farther than Pluto. But, you know, that's still nothing compared to the distances to the stars. Wow. Um, you have a caller who's calling in at the at the last minute. Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to the show. Who are you? Where are you, please? Hey, this is Marshall and Wolver and Um You were just talking about Mars, and then uh, you talked about uh, further out planets. Uh, does the parallax uh, value of having uh, radio antennas, you know, a massive distance apart, actually help? No, I don't think so, because, look, uh, for radio astronomy, you take advantage of the, if you will, you call it the, the parallax thing, the, the fact that you can build a big interferometer, you know, you can combine the signals from two antennas that are far apart, uh, and, and that will allow you to see finer detail. But the purpose of SETI is not to, you know, make a map of their antenna farm. The idea is simply to pick up the signal. So what counts there is, you know, how much collecting area you have, how big is your array of antennas, how big are the individual antennas, because those affect the sensitivity, obviously. But the fact that you have antennas far apart in general is not not much benefit to you. So it's better to uh, 
uh, move out into space and build a really huge antenna in zero G than it is to uh, put a, uh, smaller antennas uh, further apart. Well, yeah, putting the antennas further apart is a fate. That would be valuable to radio astronomy where you're trying to map some nebula or something. But it doesn't really uh, give you much gain when it comes to SETI kind of things. And as you say, the, the thing you really want is a, a lot of collecting area. You want, you know, bigger is better in this instance because bigger means you can find weaker signals. And uh, the signals may be weak if the aliens are not using very, very powerful transmitters or they're not aiming their transmissions in your direction, then uh, bigger is better. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all I have today. Thank you very much. Bye, Marshall. Bye. Um, is there something we should be looking for for the, the balance of this year or into next year, or are those timelines too short to make a difference? I think that they're probably too short to make a massive difference, but, you know, there's always something new going on, and the, the things that are new that are usually most consequential in SETI are the discoveries related to the prevalence of, you know, planets that might support life, right? Because, it, you know, it was back in 1994, for example, we didn't even know if other stars had planets, right? That isn't so long ago. Uh, and so the big change, in the, if you will, in the current generation has been the discovery that planets are out there around other stars, and they're extraordinarily common, right? I mean, they're just, they're more, you know, planets and stars, of course. And, but, but we didn't know that for sure. It could have been that our solar system was somehow, you know, an exception, that most stars didn't have solar systems, but that's not the case. At least 80% of stars that are like the sun have, have planets. And a high percentage of those will have a planet more or less the same size as the Earth. So it might have an atmosphere, it might have oceans, that kind of thing. Now, we haven't found any life in space so far, nothing. But I, you know, I'm willing to bet you my proverbial cup of coffee that we will find that in, uh, you know, in the, in the next 10 years. That we'll find evidence of life or past life on places like Mars or some of the moons of Jupiter or the, moon, the couple of moons of Saturn that are promising. There, there are many places just in our own solar system where we might find some sort of uh, exist or once did exist. And sure, that life is most likely going to be something that you need a microscope to see. But, you know, at least you know that biology is not something very rare if you find something like that. And I think that that's the big uh, discovery to look forward to in the next five or ten years. Uh, as an astronomer, are you excited that phosphorus has been confirmed on Enceladus? Well, uh, I'm not terribly excited. I, I haven't been, you know, grabbing people off the street and say, hey, did you know well, Enceladus has phosphorus? Uh, you know, but it is one of the, what, five or six elements that are most commonly found in biology. So, it's, But you know what would have been more surprising? What is if that? they hadn't found phosphorus, if they'd looked for it and they couldn't find it, right? Because, you know, we know pretty much what the universe is made of. We know the elements that comprise the universe. That was one of the great triumphs of 20th century astronomy to find out that the whole universe is made of the same stuff. And uh, indeed, uh, you know, life is built of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, so forth. Uh, and, and you could say, oh, well, that's earthly life. Maybe their life is built of some, some different arrangement of of atoms, and maybe it is, but in any case, you can say that even if you're being conservative, the ingredients for life are very, very common in the universe. And uh, so that gives you hope that, well, you know, maybe they, other worlds have cooked up something too. Uh, the last question of the day comes from Jacqueline in Los Angeles, and she says, given that we know so many more planets exist today, doesn't that change the statistical odds of finding life? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jacqueline's quite right. I mean, it could have been, as I said, if, if you just, you know, asked people in 1990 or 1994, you know, well, on it. I mean, we're on this nice planet which has oceans and an atmosphere, so obviously, you know, it has a good chance of cooking up something. But we don't know that other worlds like that exist, and we didn't. We didn't. Finding planets is actually quite hard because... You know, they're small and dim and, and very hard to find them. But 
Uh, now we know of, what, more than 4,000 exoplanets, but that is not the important thing. The important thing is that we now know that at least 80% of stars that are sort of like the sun have planets. Right? Having planets is much more common than not having planets. And the fact that there are so many planets, sure, most of them are going to be kind of worthless, like, you know, Neptune or whatever. But some of them, just by the luck of the draw, some of them are going to be okay. So it sounds like, okay, all the ingredients for life are out there. And if the ingredients for life are out there, maybe life is out there too. Keep in mind, Earth, you know, Earth was born, what, four and a half billion years ago. And within a half a billion years or thereabouts, it already had life. Right? Life got started very quickly on Earth, and that suggests that suggests that getting life started is not so difficult a problem. Um, any concluding comments? Anything you, you want to leave us with? Well, only this. I mean, you know, we, we've been talking about a lot of stuff, much of which has been speculative because it has to be at this point. But I, I do think that the listeners to the show should, uh, you know, consider themselves lucky to be living at a time when I think that they can expect that we will make the first discovery of life beyond Earth, and that'll be a big story. And you give us 10 years for that? Uh, if, if we don't find something within 10 years, yeah, call me up and I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Well, I'm, I hope I'll still be here in 10 years. I'd love to see that. <laughs> as, I, as I go, well, you're still a young guy. So um, it's very nice talking to you again, and, and thank you very much. And uh, I hope your eyesight stays sharp <laughs> and, and, and your ears stay sharp. So, um, by the way, when they're looking at radio telescope, is the image for an ocean world like Enceladus different from a solid rock world? Well, uh, it, in general, it's not because what you're looking at is, you know, with a radio telescope, I mean, there's not much point in looking at Enceladus. Uh, it doesn't make much in the way of radio waves, but anything, you know, produces a little bit of radio emission just by the fact that it's, you know, it has a uh-huh. temperature that's not absolute zero, right? So your next door neighbor is emitting radio waves too from their bodies, and uh, you know, so so we do do that. But Enceladus is, you know, it's, it's an ice-covered moon, and so it's it's cold. It doesn't produce a whole lot of radio waves, not very interesting ones. Jupiter, on the other hand, does um, because Jupiter has strong magnetic fields and uh, that that influences uh, what sort of radio waves you get from it. So Jupiter does produce radio waves. People people study Jupiter and some of the other planets in radio waves uh, as they study the sun. It also produces quite a bit of radio waves. So, but that that's understanding the uh, the physics of what's going on in the atmospheres of those bodies, and that's you know it's, it's a little different than SETI. Okay, uh, until the next time, and thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay. Okay. Uh, my pleasure. Bye-bye. And uh, listeners, that's it for today. And uh, you want to come back on uh, Tuesday, and our, our Tuesday show has Gary Barnhart, who many of you know. He's talking about uh, possibly using the ISS when it phases down for a space solar power type of platform. Uh, he's presented on this before uh, uh, I think on Howard Bloom's list, plus also at National Space Society. Uh, and I'll see if I can get one of his papers and put it on the blog before Tuesday. Uh, I want to thank everybody who emailed in and who called uh, Dr. Shostak. Uh, I'm surprised nobody wanted to ask him about Tic Tac. I didn't want to go down that road, but when John called, I thought for sure he might go down that road, uh, although he's outspoken on it. So for people who, who follow what's going on in that area they would be familiar with what Dr. Shostak has to say about TikTok and by the way since we're talking in 30 seconds or less about TikTok I want to uh, draw your attention to the Ethan show um, uh, from a couple of days ago and uh, the reason is is he was asked about these objects can't possibly have our physics because they're breaking the laws of physics or something like that. And he gave an explanation of breaking the laws of physics and what that would entail. We're doing something different than the known laws of physics. And I think that that's in the latter part of the discussion. 
with Ethan. So um, if you have the time and this interests you, you should go to the Dr. Siegel program, excuse me, and it was last Tuesday, June 20th, and uh, he gave a really interesting analysis and definition uh, for those who say it can't be our physics as to why that's not correct. Uh, so that may burst some people's bubbles who use that as an argument for, well, it's not known physics, it can't be ours, it's got to be E.T. He blows that bubble apart when he talks about making a statement about what's known and not known physics. So I, I call your attention to that. Again, I want to thank Dr. Shostak for being with us. He's already off the phone. And for all of you for uh, emailing and calling. And uh, the weekend has a little bit left, so enjoy it. Keep it safe. Uh, have a good time. Be productive. And as always, keep looking up. And we will be back on Tuesday evening with another Space Show program. Once again, goodbye from the Space Show.